I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's sponsor is Blue Land Cleaning. Blue Land is an eco-friendly cleaning products company on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic packaging. They offer their products as a set of reusable bottles, along with cleaning tablets that you simply add to warm water to make a full bottle of hand soap or cleaning solution. Also founded by a mom with a three-year-old son. My kids loved making all these products with me. And now we have these amazing glass bottles and all different color hues uh, that make cleaning a little bit more fun, especially during quarantine. I had the best conversation with Natalie Jenner, who is a debut author of the Jane Austen Society. We chatted on Instagram Live, so you can watch that there if you would like on my at Zibby Owens Instagram page. Natalie was born in England and emigrated to Canada as a young child. She obtained her BA from the University of Toronto's St. Michael's College, where she was the 1990 gold medalist in English literature. She got her LLB from the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and was called to the Bar of Ontario in 1995. In addition to a brief career as a corporate lawyer, Natalie has worked as a recruiter, a career coach, and consultant to leading law firms in Canada for over 20 years. Most recently, Natalie founded the independent bookstore Archetype Books in Oakville, Ontario, where she lives with her family and two rescue dogs. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Well, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, obviously. Oh, sure. So it's so funny. I was recently on Ann Bogle's podcast, which is called What Should I Read Next? And your book was one of the ones that she was most excited about reading this summer. So I know mean, it's been really great. She's been wonderfully supportive. I feel very blessed right now. <laughs> so tell us what your book is about and what inspired you to write it. So my book is about eight extremely different people at the end of World War II who are all dealing with trauma and loss in different ways. And they bond over a sort of unknown shared love of Jane Austen that's sort of percolating amongst them and sort of either on their own or in little subgroups. And they decide to form a society to try and save the cottage where Jane Austen in real life had lived and worked or revised her six major works. So it's a very fictional account of something that actually did happen, though, during the war, which was the formation of the first real life Jane Austen society. Wow. Yeah. And so what sparked your particular interest in this? So I had a shattering experience like Judith and you were just discussing. And my husband and I had opened up a little independent bookshop and four months in, he was diagnosed with a very rare and and terminal form of lung disease that's also genetic. And at the time, we were told that most people would pass away within two to three years. And we were a young family. We had a 14-year-old daughter. So I was also a a career coach. Um, I used to be a lawyer, and I, I coach lawyers for a living. So I had to make some hard decisions about time and travel and income. And I closed down the bookshop on its one year anniversary. And I was, I mean, it was a hobby farm. I was working for free and I was working, you know, 24 seven. I loved it, but it wasn't feasible. And we took a year and we traveled and we tried to do things that we'd always, you know, talked about doing. And I aggressively reread Jane Austen as well. And I, I watched a lot of TV. I blew through all 22 years of Cheers and Fraser on the elliptical. <laughs> but I, I read a lot of Jane Austen. Then I started to read a lot about her. And then my husband went golfing with the guys to Augusta, Georgia. And I'm like, that's great. I'm going to England and I'm going to go to this little village. I'm going to spend a whole week there, just me. And I love you people, but I'm going to go do this. And it really changed my life. I I loved my time there. I came back energized and at peace in this very odd way. And I kept reading about Jane 
And then my husband was put on some pretty uh, rare and innovative drugs and his lung decline stabilized. So right now he's healthful. He's able to golf and live a completely full life. And we've bought ourselves time. We have no idea how much. So we have to very much kind of live in the moment. But it gave me hope again, Zibi. Like it just kind of made me feel like you don't know what's around the corner. And there's no point in freezing up and not engaging. So I kept putting myself out there a little bit. I took my daughter to Philadelphia for, I'm from Canada. I'm in my writer's shed, by the way, like 20 feet from Lake Ontario. I took my daughter to Philadelphia and we went to this, our first Jane Austen conference and it was amazing. And I came back and I looked at her one day and I said, I feel like writing again for the first time in years. And I'm going to write about a group of people trying to save an old house because I've been watching a lot of Downton Abbey as well. And then one day I just looked up and I said, I'm going to write about a group of people that come together to save Jane Austen's house. And I typed the Jane Austen Society and I typed the first paragraph and it's all still there. And it was the most fun I ever had was writing this book. It was so much fun. Oh my gosh. So that's a story. What a story. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. Oh my gosh. How great that you took that diagnosis and like did something. I mean, I feel like it's so easy to just sit in a corner and cry. And, and I did it first for a long time. Which is fine. Which is fine. No, no, I, I did. And then, you know, what I learned was the value of hope. And that is probably the one thing that I sort of lost faith in was when the doctors tell you, here's what it is. And here are the stats. And, you know, people in his family have died from this disease. So we're not being Pollyannish. We're not going, ooh, they're all wrong. Like, we know that this is serious, but it's a day-to-day life. And I think what we're all dealing with right now, unfortunately, is you have to go hour by hour. You don't know what's around the corner. And there's a great quote by a Persian poet, Rumi. And he says, you have to live life as if it's rigged in your favor. Mm -hmm. And I had been coaching people that, but I'd forgotten it in my own pain. And then I, one day I was like, you don't know for sure. So just live your hour. And that's what I've been trying to do. So, and I've had a, I've had a great year. (laughs) I've had a wonderful time. So. Oh my gosh. So the hour went pretty well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So how did you sit down and, and write it? Like in the midst of everything else you were going through, you wrote the, you wrote the first paragraph it became this amazing book. You had all this information sort of stored up from your travels. And then did it come pouring out? Is that what happened? Or Yes. And do you know Susie orman Schnall who has the book? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Okay. So she's been like so lovely and supportive to me. And I was watching when Foster's book came out, yes. Summer Darlings. They were all talking about writing process. And I never knew anyone that had my writing process. But Susie, you know, got on and was like, I take like a year and I research the heck out of something. And then when I finally sit down to write, that's all behind me. And then I'm eight hours a day. And that's what it's like for me. It's very intensive. And in a way, getting all the research done for historical fiction ahead of time enables you to really be liberated from the facts in the way that will serve the story. So I was able to kind of have it there in the background of my mind, but really focus on the characters and what I wanted to tell about them and their interior lives. So when I do write the first draft, it's intensive because everything's just pouring out, but it worked for me with <laughs> this one. I mean, Zibi, I have five manuscripts in a drawer from like the past 20 years that didn't go anywhere, but yeah. I mean, that's like the classic story, right? Yeah. And yet when they're your manuscripts, you feel really badly that they're in there. <laughs> like, I feel like people used to always give advice like, you know, don't be afraid of rejection. But it's not like that. It should just be like, you have to write four bad novels before 
you have a good one. Like you have to, you have to like, just take the time, write the bad novel, tell yourself that like, you think it's great, but it's not. And that your next one will be better. And then move on from there. And like, don't even think twice about it. That's absolutely it. Because in a way it's like the, you know, the 10,000 hours theory of Malcolm Gladwell. It's, it's a muscle and you're learning to exercise it and you're learning to exercise it at certain times. Like as a working mom, when my daughter was in kindergarten, I would get up from five to seven to write. And, and I'm sure you're going to, you can relate to this, right? (laughs) Because you have four times what I have. I have one child, but when, sorry, do you have four children? Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So, so my creative subconscious is now trained to kick in at 5 a.m., whether I want it to or not. She's now at university and I'm still waking up at five to write. So a lot of that writing process of the manuscripts that don't get published is the training. It's the marathon. It's the, it's the lead up. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I want people to really take away from my story. Wow. So this book, how long did, when it finally finished, you were doing eight hour days of just pouring out of you. How long did it, how, after all the research and all the rest, just wondering how long it ended up taking? I mean, it was probably a good, you know, couple of months for like that preliminary first draft. But what was really fortunate for me was I landed an agent in New York who was at Curtis Brown at the time. And I'm like, you know, a housewife up in Canada. And I, I land this agent right away. And he, he just he grabbed it. And then we worked on it for months. And he basically didn't take a word out, but he wanted me to flesh out things and, you know, pace it better. Mm -hmm. And so that process was another like four months. And then we went on sub. So, so, yeah. Do you have any regrets about how you handled this? Like how you went about this? Like if you had to do it all again, it's because it sounds to me like super inspiring and spot on. Not that there's any way to judge anybody else's life, but you know what I mean? Like when you look back, you went through so much heartache and pain and uncertainty and you chose to pour it into writing. I, I don't have a single regret. And I said this to my husband last week, because I theoretically should but I can't because of where I am this hour and today, you know? So I, I think regret is a, regret is an interesting word to me because it's, it has, it, it's negative in a way. I, I think what you need to do is, is, is more f- forgiveness for the fact that at that time in your life, that's how you reacted. And as long as you weren't calculating harm to others, as long as you were just doing your best, you might err, you might miscalculate, but if your intent was good, then I think you have to kind of just say, that's who I was at that time. And I did the best I could. And there's a great documentary about the Eagles, the rock band, they're one of my favorites. And one of the later gentlemen joined said, you will look back on your life. And in the time, it's a mess. It's a toxic, you know, throwing the TV out the hotel room mess as a rock band. And then you are now our age and you look back and it has the arc of a Victorian novel and the sweep of something by like George Eliot. And it was very poetic. And I remember thinking, that's what we're all in. And that's where we're heading. So I'll just keep doing what I've been doing so far. And That's, hope it adds up. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're amazing. You're oh, like, thank you. Oh no, I mean, like, you can tell, I feel like when people go through shattering experiences, to use Judith's term again, life sort of opens up in totally new ways. And you immediately become like somebody maybe you didn't think you would, but you have this sort of perspective that not everybody has. And I think, like, when I start talking to someone like you who has that, it it is very apparent. And I feel like there's, so much to be learned and so much beauty in in that way of looking at life because really that's the only way there is to look at life but so many people 
I mean, I think this, I'm rambling, but this period of time has caused all of us, I think, to stop and look back. But I don't know, that was a long-winded way of saying just that your perspective is so important. And like, I'm sorry, you have to gain that perspective through the bad times. We always say we would give our left finger pinky arm to not have gone through what we went through, even for the perspective, because it is awful. I mean, when you're given that horrible diagnosis and it's just, it's awful. And I don't, and there's no way to sugarcoat it, but the perspective is the one silver lining. And also in a a very odd way, and I'll get a little emotional talking about this. When my husband was diagnosed and I was reading Jane Austen, Something happened to me with my reading of her for the first time in my life. So I had read her since I was a little girl many times. I had gone to the village many times. I had, um, you know, read about her, lots of books. But this time she was reaching me on a different level. And it was almost as if she she had been waiting for my maturity, my to catch up to her to where she was, because I think she had a hard life. I think she was somebody who was like one of the handful of geniuses in literature up there with Shakespeare. And I think that she, you know, was struggling, you know, with the money and the ill health and she had chronic illness. I think she was probably far more sick for far longer than she let on to her family, because I think culturally there was a stoicism you know, we're a much more open culture. So, you know, at the time, I remember when I was reading her, she was speaking to me on a new level. And then I was like, closing this bookshop. And I'm like, why? Like, why did you have me open this bookshop and put all this time and money and labor into it and then and give us this diagnosis four months later, which sounds self-pitying, but it just, it wasn't adding up for me at all. And now, now that everyone is going through fear for their loved one's lungs and uncertainty and the healthcare workers risk their lives every day. And I feel like I was kind of given this bizarre four-year head start and I was able to develop some resilience that now enables me to fully enjoy this publication journey and enables me to be more present for my family. And that's all a gift from the horrible thing we went through, which is my rambling response <laughs> to you, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, thank you for matching my own rambling. I feel much better now. Thank you. <laughs> you were um, fine. <laughs> I don't think that that feeling is self-pity. I think anyone in your shoes would wonder the same thing and be just so angry about it. I mean, anyway, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't beat yourself up. It sounds like you're in a pretty good place, but um, <laughs> um, you deserved any self-pity. And I think it's just so great. So my, here's my other question. Why, I know, like, why Jane Austen? What is it about her that it's a really good question. you so much? And like, yeah. what is it you see in her that's, yeah. Go ahead. So there's, I have like three or four things that happened to me with Jane Austen. So the first one is language. And there's something about her, literally her syntax, the way she does a sentence, the way she does a paragraph and that zinger at the end of the long paragraph that you don't always get with Henry James, for example, like you're reading and reading and reading and then bam, she just gets you. And she, she just places the words in this way that is very soothing to my mind as I'm reading. So I find her just a very calming authorial voice, basically. I think the second major reason is that she creates these little worlds. Like, you know, people are like, why do they film Jane Austen so much? And I'm like, because there's a lot of characters in there to get right. And you'll never get them all right. So then you'll make another Emma and another Mr. Knightley, but he'll be blonde and a little younger and a little shorter. Like, it's, it's a really interesting how she, you don't think there's a lot of people in the books, 
because she talked about three or four families in a village. That's the essence of the core. But there, there's a lot of characters. And she's so brilliant at characterization. She sketches them so fast for you. So she doesn't have to spend a lot of time for, you know, right away what a Miss Bates is like or, or Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. So what I love is she creates these little worlds that have so many people we can relate to and that we recognize in ourselves. But they're, they're still different enough from our life that we can go into them and escape from ours and yet still learn some lessons, which I find really fascinating. So on that level, I find her like a tonic, very purifying. And then Finally, my, my number one reason is I am a sucker for a happy ending and I am a romantic and I love that she gives the reader the catharsis. She makes her heroines like really, you know, they really have to work for those happy endings, but they will get them in the end. And I love that about her. I love going into those books, knowing that the good guys will win. You know, so. And is that like your book? Can you give away? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely an escape. And it's definitely, I will say I have an epilogue. And when I was writing it, I just remember being so happy that I could tie off the arcs of these eight different characters. And I still get emotional if I read the epilogue. I haven't read the whole book since like for, for a while now. I know this is the wrong thing to say on a podcast. You start to kind of hate your book. And what I mean by that is you, you love your story, but the book itself, it's now, it's a year and a half process to publication. So you're kind of like, you know, after a while, you're like, I want to talk about something else. But now that it's out there, this is the most exciting time because people are getting it in the mail. And like friends have pre-ordered it and it's arriving and they're showing me photographs and, and now it has a life of its own. And now it's like another journey starting. And uh, there's a great quote that um, there's some amazing Canadian novelists in action right now. And one of them, Sam Bailey, was a great thriller called Woman on the Edge. She was telling me, I have these women mentoring me in Facebook and Messenger. There's a bunch of Canadian women authors and I'll just be like, help me. <laughs> and they all jump in and they give me advice. And Sam said that Karma Brown, another great Canadian writer, had said to her that once the book is published, it's not really yours anymore. And I thought that was such a brilliant way to look at reviews and buzz and PR. And, you know, you get emails from people through your website that are not always pleasant. You know, all that part of it that you just learn to accept that this, the story is mine, but the book is theirs. And I also find, you know, at this stage... That's a really, for me, a liberating lesson and it enables me as a very new author who did not think two years ago that any of this is going to happen to her. It enables me to stay in the moment right now as well. I love that. When the story is mine, but the book is theirs. That's yeah. awesome. That's, that's like, karma. Okay, I want to like write friend. that down. No, I wanna, whatever. It's, it's, great, uh, it's great advice. By the way, speaking of Canadian women authors, I don't know if you know Sarah Mlynowski. Do you know her? If not, I know. Okay, I'm going to put you guys in touch because she's also like rah-rah Canada. She lives in LA now, but anyway, she's (laughs) the one who actually told me to start a podcast a couple of years ago. Oh, that's so great. Anyway, just if you want another new friend or whatever. Sure, I don't know always. (laughs) I need all the help I can get right now. (laughs) So you're living each hour as we all in a way are in this pandemic. What is your advice to getting through life right now and in general, and you've already given such amazing advice about, you know, the perspective that you have, but advice on writing, but mostly just advice on how to maintain the focus of living in the hour when things get in the way in that hour. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think 
a lot of it is I found things were easier if I was completely honest with myself about what I needed at that time. And to be absolutely honest, sometimes that meant saying no to people who wanted to catch up over coffee. Tell me how your husband is. And you'd been on the phone all day with doctors and you, you didn't want to have that conversation. And I would be like, I'm so sorry. I just don't feel like doing that right now. And the old Natalie would not have done that. But something about paying attention to what I really needed must have given me some kind of buffer or margin because it's made me now much better at that. I'm now able to give more of myself. So I think there is some sort of subconscious energy conservation that we all have to be mindful right now of. And we're, people are trying to homeschool and they have to make every meal and they're worried about their parents. And there's so much coming at you. And I think being honest with yourself about how much you can handle is probably the number one thing you have to do in order to pace yourself, because clearly we have uncertainty for at least several more weeks, you know, if not months ahead. So I think there's a pacing that, that needs to take place and, and to be gentle and, and kind and, and patient with yourself as well. It sounds very self-oriented, but it actually, it's like that expression about the mom, you know, putting the oxygen mask on first. And I, I found that by giving myself that quiet year, immersing myself in Jane Austen and taking the trip that I wanted to take and writing the book, even though I think my daughter was in exams, my husband was in Ireland golfing with his friends. That's when I started to write the book. You know, it wasn't the best time in life to try and write the book, but I made the time for it. And I think that doing my year really gave me now an ability to share more openly because I'm actually, believe it or not, as I'd be a very private person. <laughs> um, I told my husband, I said, don't watch because I have a feeling that because Zibby's great, I have a feeling I'm going to uh. <laughs> You're going to be in here. I said, just watch it later. <laughs> so. so funny. Oh my gosh. Are you going to, are you going to write another book or do you feel like that like got everything out or what? No, that's a really, I mean, I think because I had already written five books, I am a writer. I am yeah. someone that has, there's a lot going on here if you haven't gleaned that yet. And at any given time, I have different stories percolating. So I have one, another historical fiction. I think it's going to be set in New York. I'm, I'm very excited about it. But I did write another book that is sort of waiting with my agent, things going on. And it's set in more modern times. But my books, I think, will always be about a group of characters coming together and dealing with history or art or culture or saving something. I, I, I like multi-character stories. I really, I love creating a bunch of people and then having them bash up against each other in a room. So that's, so that's something I'm excited to do. And I've raised a little writer. I have a, a daughter heading into third year university and she just finished, like she's not published yet, but she's finished her second novel. And we're just constantly talking right now, which is like, we've never had that. That's a whole new facet to the mother-daughter relationship, which is really amazing. So. Oh, that's yeah. so nice. That is yeah. so special. I feel like even when my daughter writes like three sentences, I'm like, that's amazing. No, <laughs> it is. No, it's amazing. Expression is amazing. And, and also it's them. It's their own ego, their own creative mind. And that's separate, so separate from you. And it's wonderful. Yeah. And then parting advice on writing. So with this book, the biggest advice I can give, because people are like, wow, you tried really, like I tried really hard for decades to get published. And I think my books were actually pretty good. And I wrote them authentically and, and from the heart. My biggest advice would be to write the book that you most need to write. And don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Because if it's the book that you most need to write, then it's probably 
you're the only person that can write that story. And that will give you a little market edge because it's pretty crowded field out there. But the other thing too, with this book was I said to myself, first, I wrote it for me because I wanted to be close to Jane Austen again, but I'd read all the books. <laughs> I'd reread them. I was like, how do I see she's that? So I was writing this book and I'm like, right away in chapter one, I'm like, oh, I get to stay in Jane Austen's world. I get to talk about her with my characters. So I wrote it for me. I wrote it for my husband. The dedication of my book is for my husband. I wrote it for him. And, but I remember I said to myself, it has to have more than a snowball's chance in hell of being of interest to somebody else. And that was the hook, I think, with the Jane Austen. And I'm very grateful to her because I know that this is why this is happening. And, you know, I would say to people, it's very important to have something be very authentic, the story you most need to write, but it does have to have that unique kind of hook that immediately will pull people in. So, Natalie, I am so excited I spoke to you today. I'm oh, so thank excited. You. I know this went on. This can absolutely be the podcast. If the sound is okay, I'm going to just okay. it because I was worried with like down here in my basement and all the rest, but I'm glad that despite this, we can still have such a nice conversation and no, it's wonderful. you're really inspiring and it's just really great to be connected. So no, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on and stay well. You too. Okay. okay take okay. care. Bye. 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 Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Blue Land Cleaning, our sponsor for today's episode. Blue Land Cleaning, get your single-use plastic packaging. Make that a thing of the past with this eco-friendly cleaning products company. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 